Well, this morning we're going to be uh, in 2 Kings chapter 5, so go ahead and turn there with me. And it is uh, my, my pleasure to be with you this morning and, and bring the Word of God. And keep Ken in your prayer over, as he's over there in, in Russia, encouraging some pastors. And pray for us staffers here too. Seems like anytime Ken goes, something weird happens. So keep, keep us in prayer. I'm going to have you guys stay seated because we're actually going to read all of chapter 5 here. Second Kings chapter 5. It reads, Now Naaman was commander of the army of the king of Aram. He was a great man in the sight of his master and highly regarded, because through him the Lord had given victory to Aram. He was a valiant soldier, but he had leprosy. Now bands of raiders from Aram had gone out and had taken captive a young girl from Israel, and she served Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, If only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. Naaman went to his master and told him what the girl from Israel had said. By all means, go, the king of Aram replied. I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So Naaman left, taking with him 10 talents of silver, 6,000 shekels of gold, and 10 sets of clothing. The letter that he took to the king of Israel read, With this letter, I'm sending my servant Naaman to you so that you may cure him of his leprosy. As soon as the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his robes and said, Am I God? Can I kill and bring back to life? Why does this fellow send someone to me to be cursed, cured of his leprosy? See how he's trying to pick a quarrel with me. When Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his robes, he sent him this message. Why have you torn your robes? Have the man come to me, and he will know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman went with his horses and chariots and stopped at the door of Elisha's house. Elisha sent a messenger to say to him, Go, wash yourself seven times in the Jordan, and your flesh will be restored and you will be cleansed. But Naaman went away angry and said, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call on the name of the Lord his God, wave his hand over the spot and cure me of my leprosy. Are not Abana and Parfar the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Couldn't I wash in them and be cleansed? So he turned and went off in a rage. Naaman's servants went to him and said, My father, if the prophet had told you to do some great thing, would you not have done it? How much more then when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? So he went down and dipped himself in the Jordan seven times, as the man of God had told him, and his flesh was restored and became clean, like that of a young boy. Then Naaman and all his attendants went back to the man of God. He stood before him and said, Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. The prophet answered, As surely as the Lord lives whom I serve, I will not accept a thing. And even though Naaman urged him, he refused. If you will not, said Naaman, please let me, your servant, be given as much earth as a pair of mules can carry. For your servant will never again make burnt offerings and sacrifices to any other God but the Lord. But may the Lord forgive your servant for this one thing. When my master enters the temple of Ramon to bow down, and he's leaning on my arm, and I have to bow there also, when I bow down in the temple of Ramon, may the Lord forgive your servant for this. Go in peace, Elijah said. And after Naaman 
had traveled some distance, Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, the man of God, said to himself, My master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought. As surely as the Lord lives, I'll run after him and get something from him. So Gehazi hurried after Naaman, and when Naaman saw him running toward him, he got down from the chariot to meet him. Is everything all right? he asked. Everything is all right, Gehazi answered. My master sent me to say that two young men have, uh, from the company of the prophets have just come to me from the hill country of Ephraim. Please give them a talent of silver and two sets of clothing. By all means, take two talents, said Naaman. He urged Gehazi to accept them and then tied up the two talents of silver in two bags with two sets of clothing. He gave them to two of his servants and they carried them ahead of Gehazi. When Gehazi came to the hill, he took the things from the servants and put them away in the house. He sent the man away, and, le- and they left. When he went in and stood before his master, Elisha asked him, Where have you been, Gehazi? Your servant didn't go anywhere, Gehazi answered. But Elisha said to him, Was not my spirit with you when the man got down from his chariot to meet you? Is this the time to take money or to accept clothes or olive groves? In vineyards or flocks and herds or male and female slaves, Naaman's leprosy will cling to you and to your descendants forever. Then Gehazi went from Elisha's presence, and his skin was leprous. It had become as white as snow. Uh, Let's pray. Father in heaven, we thank you, God, uh, for your word to us, Lord, that's been been preserved through so many years, God, uh, that we get to benefit from this, Lord. And we pray, God, that you would open our eyes and our hearts that we might see and understand and perceive, God, the things you have for us this morning. Lord, speak to your church, uh, encourage us and strengthen us in the Lord. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen. I've grown up uh, watching movies. I don't know about you guys. That's, that's what we do. My wife and I just watched a movie last night. But uh, as a kid, we grew up on Disney movies. Um, any other people out there grew up on Disney movies? I can't even see. The lights are so bright up here. It doesn't... Okay. Anyways, the company, uh, but the company, Disney, right, specializes in creating a place where dreams come true, right? It's where your dreams come true, except if you're Bambi's mom. Um, but it seems to me that life uh, rarely ever pans out the way my dreams do. I mean, sometimes I even have bad dreams. I mean, don't get me wrong, many things are good in this life, even very good as, as God created. He called this world good, 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 and then very good in the end. But, but nothing seems to deliver the magic like the screen hypes up. I mean, for instance, the last time my wife were actually at Disneyland, things didn't quite pan out as we thought they would. Uh, we were having a great time. Uh, it was before we had kids, so we were definitely having a great time. And um, <laughs> all day long... We were around uh, bustling crowds and standing in lines and uh, eating good food, and it was nice and sunny because it's California. Uh, please, Lord, bring the sun. Uh, but it was nothing out of the ordinary happened. It was, it was a nice, pleasant time. But as the, as the day progressed and as it got close to evening, before the sun was about to set, I had an interesting experience. Um, the crowd had thinned out by that time, and uh, my wife and I were walking along, and, and a man walked you know, right past me, and he got a little close and bumped into me, and I noticed his fingers slipped into my pocket and went away. Um, he was fishing for my billfold, and I, and I turned around and looked at him, and he said, what? And then kept walking on. And I, and I sat there, and I thought to myself, am I crazy? <laughs> Did that just happen? I mean, 
Um, I had my wallet in my cargo shorts, so uh, they were all buttoned up and everything was safe. But uh, was I dreaming it up? Is this really, did this really happen? And after I thought about it and, and I said what, to my wife what happened, and she noticed that the guy was kind of eyeing us as we were walking along, I figured the right thing to do was to report the man to security, right? Because he's probably doing this to other people. So we went to security. Security was really nice, took care of the situation. Um, but it didn't quite, you know, that day didn't quite pan out like I thought. And I, and I was uh, angry and frustrated for the rest of the evening thinking about that. The moral of the story is keep your wallet in your cargo pockets if you go to Disneyland. <laughs> but even at the place where dreams are supposed to come true, the happiest place on earth, things don't always pan out as we like. It seems like uh, on the screen we've been convinced that, that things must be grand, that things must be romantic, things must be thrilling, and if life isn't this way, then something is terribly wrong, and you need out of the situation. You need to, to fulfill yourself in some different way. And today, I hope through our time together, we can find that the place, uh, you know, the happiest place on earth, the place where dreams come true, is less grand in appearance, um, but more deeply fulfilling than we could ever have hoped or imagined as are all the pure graces of God in this life, in the life to come. And at, at, to give a little context to this story here in, in 2 Kings chapter 5, I want to look at where are we in the history of Israel. Now, uh, Israel at this time uh, is a divided kingdom. The, the, the kingdom of Israel was established uh, by the prophet uh, Samuel at the request of the people in disobedience to God. Um, but they were given King Saul in about 1050 B.C., the next king after him was King David. This was the golden era, the united kingdom of Israel under David. He reigned uh, at around 1000 BC. And then um, after David came Solomon, and after him, David's grandson, Rehoboam, came. And under his grandson, Rehoboam, in 930 BC, the kingdom split. It split. The southern kingdom, Judah, uh, they, it was called Judah, but it was actually the, tribes, the two tribes of Judah and Benjamin. And then the northern kingdom of Israel which were the other 10 tribes. Um, and this is where we find ourselves. We find ourselves in, in a divided kingdom here in 2 Kings chapter 5. And in this uh, instance, we're, we're, we're focusing on the northern part, the kingdom of Israel. And uh, the, the, the two books, First and Second Kings, uh, where they, they merge together, uh, takes place around two, the, the ministry of two different prophets, the first being Elijah, with a J, uh, who ministered between 875 and 850 B.C. And the second prophet, Elisha, between 850 and 800 B.C. Now, this is unnecessarily confusing, in my opinion, but these are two different men. Uh, and then moving forward in history, in 722 B.C. was the fall of Israel, and then in about 586 B.C. was the fall of Judah. Now, the books First and Second Kings were originally one work, the Book of Kings. Uh, they were divided into two books around 400 A.D. Uh, in one of the Septuagint translations. But it's similar to the way that the books of Samuel and Chronicles uh, were divided as well. Originally, Samuel was one book, and originally Chronicles was its own book as well. But those also were broken up into two parts. So now we have First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings, First and Second Chronicles. Um, but the separation of these two books, First and Second Kings, hinge on the distinction between these two ministries, the two prophets, Elijah and Elisha. So First Kings ends with the conclusion of Elijah's ministry, 
And 2 Kings begins with Elijah going off to heaven and then the onset of Elisha's ministry. I think uh, I often confuse these two prophets, and, and I think many other people do as well. Um, sometimes people think of uh, that the whole time it's Elijah, but these are two distinct men of God who carried out different roles with their different personalities. Uh, Elijah, talking about personality, Elijah was a prophet of fire. Uh, we saw him call, up, call, call upon the name of the Lord, and fire came down and consumed an altar in their um, contention with Baal. At another time, he called down fire as well. Um, but he was a man of the wilderness, a man who wore uh, hairy skins. Uh, he wore a leather belt as well. Uh, but if we compare that to Elisha, who's a, a completely different man. He was a farmer. He lived in and around the cities. He wore the normal attire of the day. And, uh, and also, when you observe the lives of these two prophets, we begin to see them as uh, paralleling some characters in the New Testament or prototypes or foreshadowing two men who were to come on the scene centuries later. Those two men being the first John the Baptist, who is more like Elijah. Uh, actually, Jesus says in Matthew eleven fourteen that he was the Elijah who was to come. Similarly, uh, John the Baptist was a man of the wilderness, a man who wore camel, you know, camel hair outfits and leather belts, and who was a preacher of repentance, a, like a fiery type preacher. Whereas Elisha, on the other hand, uh, uh, is a type of, or, a, or more of a figure of Jesus Christ. Uh, who had many works of mercy and kindness similar to uh, Elisha, but Jesus's obviously went above and beyond the acts performed by Elisha. Jesus also is certainly considered greater than John the Baptist, I think, in the same way that Elisha is said to have received a double portion of Elijah's spirit. So now that we're all thoroughly confused even more, uh, we'll move on. Um, but Elisha, I think it's interesting too, just to look at, uh, to, to survey a few of his miracles, um, and they're, they're, they're remarkable. Elisha's miracles include, uh, he divided the Jordan River, uh, he, there was some, some bitter water that was brought to him, water that, that couldn't be um, consumed, and he took some salt and threw it on it and purified the water. Um, there were some boys that came out from, from the city of, or the town of Bethel, uh, Bethel was a, a a hot spot of idolatry, Baal worship, and they came down and they cursed uh, Elisha, and, uh, or they mocked Elisha because he was bald. So it's not, you know, it happens to everybody, I guess, who's a guy. But uh, uh, Elisha then uh, cursed these boys, and two bears came out and attacked them. Uh, there was uh, a poor woman uh, who, uh, a poor widow, and, and she had a little bit of olive oil and he told her to take the olive oil and, and find as many jars as possible and dump out the olive oil into the jars. And she filled up all of them. So there's an amazing multiplication of olive oil. Uh, there's the Shunammite woman's son uh, who had died. Elisha brought him back to life. There was a, a pot of stew that was poisoned. And uh, Elisha uh, made it so that it was no longer poison. He detoxed it. Um, there was actually even a a, a situation where there was a little bit of bread and too many people, and he multiplied the loaves of bread for the people to eat. Here we see also that Elisha heals a leopard, a, a leper. Uh, he also, uh, a, a man dropped an axe head in the water, and it was an expensive piece of equipment, and he caused the axe head to float on the water. He blinded an entire uh, Aramean army, uh, later taking place after this account, and even in death, uh, uh, Elisha's bones were in a tomb, and a man who had died was thrown into the tomb of Elisha, and the man was raised back to life. So 
Uh, Elisha has some, some notable miracles. It wasn't like him conjuring them up. It was obviously the Lord God uh, approving of his ministry and doing these himself. But here we're going to focus and narrow in on the situation with Naaman. Naaman, uh, who is the commander of the army of the king of Aram. Now, Aram, spoken of here, was located in present-day Syria in southern Turkey, a place of contention uh, today. The Arameans actually, though, were closely related to the Israelites. I mean, part of Abraham's family, uh, Abraham lived there on his, his sojourning and trek down to the, the land of Canaan. Um, but part of his family continued living in Aram um, after he had so, sojourned south. Um, so Jacob, uh, also known as Israel, at one point, even in Deuteronomy chapter 26, is called an Aramean. And Jacob goes north uh, and spent time in Aram uh, and where he found his wife and worked for his uncle Laban. And so there's these ties, these close relationships between the Arameans and the Israelites throughout Scripture. Though there was, uh, though there was common ancestry between Aram and Israel, though, the relationship was a rocky relationship. At times, the Israelites were on good terms with the Arameans, as it seems here. But at other times, later in, in, second, uh, in the book of Second Kings, there's war between them. The language of the Arameans was influential in the region as well. It was the commonly accepted international language of the region, um, Aramaic, uh, for centuries. Uh, even a section of the Bible, the book of Daniel, was written in Aramaic, and the common language of Jesus' day was Aramaic. So uh, not only was Aram an influential, an influ, influential place, and the language was influential as well, but honing in on this particular account, we see a certain man, Naaman, considered a great and influential man of his day, a commander, a general of, of the armies, highly regarded in the sight of his king and of his people. And the passage even says something interesting about him, that the Lord had given victory to Aram through Naaman here. So it seems not only was he highly regarded in the eyes of the people, but he was highly esteemed in the eyes of God as well. But with all his greatness, his great position, his influence on his own people, his influence on the king, his influence on the nations around him, he was unable to influence something so much closer to home, his own health. He had a skin disease. He had leprosy. It's a disease which in Israel would have considered him unclean and would have required his quarantine, his isolation from the people, lest the disease spread about. Modern day leprosy is also known as Hansen's disease. Uh, I've got a picture here uh, on the screen of uh, leprosy and what it can do to people. It can be treated present day, it can be treated and healed with medication, but if left unchecked, it can spread throughout the body and going deep into the, into the bones as well, uh, leaving the skin either light or dark in decay. It causes numbness, uh, and the numbness can lead to the repeated injuries of hands and limbs and extremities, which can lead to secondary infections and the loss of limbs, and even possibly the loss of life. Now, um, this leprosy of Naaman's is really the situation, though, of, of man with God, I think, in general. I mean, even though he's a grand man, he's, he seems like he has it all together, presenting himself as great and having influence over other people, having it all together, putting his best face on. But no matter how hard he tries, underneath it all, underneath his clothes, there's this spreading disease that go, is deeper than skin. It isolates people from, from others, and if left unchecked, leads to death. And I think this is also the same problem that we have uh, with God, which is our own problem of sin. Even though we can 
cover ourselves up, uh, try to put it together like we're uh, something great, something special, uh, something holy or righteous. It seems like no matter how hard we try underneath it all, there is that sin problem. And it goes deeper. It, it, it's, it's from the heart. It, it causes us to isolate ourselves from each other. It causes us to isolate ourselves from God, just like it did in the, in the garden uh, where Adam and Eve, uh, when they ate from the, the forbidden fruit and uh, they became shameful, uh, immediately they covered themselves up and went and hid. And then they started blaming each other. It's the same problem. And if it's left unchecked, it leads to, we're told, eternal demise, eternal death. And it's, a, it's not just one man, it's a universal problem for mankind. I mean, what, what a wretched man I am, who will rescue me from this body that's subject to death? So we've got this problem here with Naaman, and it reminds us of our problem with sin. But, uh, but in the house of Naaman, uh, we have a, a, a fortunate person, a little slave girl. Now the Arameans, it says, had sent raiding bands throughout Israel. And part of the spoil happened to be taken captives, and this one young girl ended up as a slave in the home of Naaman. I think it's, it's profound that this young girl speaks up to Naaman's wife and says, if only my master would see the prophet who's in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. I mean, this, this little girl was living a free life at home in Israel among her people, and then she was captured. She had become a slave. And in her captivity, in her slavery, she did not despise her master or sabotage his work or plot his downfall. Instead, she sought the well-being of the place that she was in, whatever it was. And she took to heart God's desire for us that we would love our enemies and pray for those who persecute us. I mean, I think uh, of us in, in our different situations in life, uh, whether, whether or not we you know, we work or we own our own businesses, but many of us work, and, and some of us feel like, you know, we've got the nine-to-five ball and chain, feels like slavery. Uh, we have people who are in debt up to their eyeballs. Uh, some of us feel like we're stuck at a dead-end job. It barely pays the bills. We feel constrained. We feel hopeless. We feel despairing. feel like we're in captivity. If the situation will never end. But we look at this little girl, and how was it that this little slave girl had a sincere desire for her slave master, Naaman, to get well. I think it's, it's profound that the Bible tells us that godliness with contentment is great gain. It's not money, it's not position, not even freedom necessarily, but godliness with contentment. Though she was a slave in, in person, physically, her spirit was still free to worship and adore her God And her God couldn't be taken away from her, even though she was taken away herself into captivity in a foreign land. This young girl knew the God of Israel, and she knew that the prophet of God was in Samaria. And she had all confidence and and all sincerity. She wished her master would go see him. And in faith, the still, small voice of a child began a chain reaction of events that influenced two nations and generations of people to come, even reaching us in our seats today. So this whole account starts with the faith of a slave girl looking out for the best interest of her slave master, which is profound and powerful. And Naaman takes her advice. 
the, the advice of this little slave girl, and tells his, his boss, the king, of this newest option for healing. Surely he had gone to the priests of the day. Surely he had tried the different medications and ointments available. Surely he had done anything possible. And now he hears that there's a possibility in Israel to be healed, and the king of Aram is excited. He says, uh, by all means, go. And he sends off Naaman with a letter of recommendation. But it's interesting that, uh, that Naaman then shows up, uh, the commander of the army of the Arameans shows up with his entourage at the doorstep of the king of Israel with a message and a hefty reward if he can heal him of his leprosy. Now, we know that it was supposed to be him going to see Elisha, but the king of Aram wrote the, the letter to the king of Israel. Now, the motives for Naaman and the king seem sincere. Uh, I think they assumed that a prophet with such power like Elisha, if there's a man in Israel who can heal leprosy, he must be a man of, of great power and great abilities uh, and can see, have, has, has foresight and in the, in the rest. Uh, surely he would be at the feet of the king of Israel. But the king of Israel rends his garments, believing this as an, to be an act of provocation. Uh, with war in mind. And I think it's a great tragedy that a little slave girl in captivity away in Aram, in Syria, has in her heart a sincere and concern for this man with leprosy and knows that the God of Israel can do something about it and knows that the, the prophet in Israel can take care of it. But the king of Israel, the man who's supposed to, above all others, exalt the word of God and encourage the people to seek the Lord, does not see here an opportunity for God's salvation or God's glory, but only an opportunity for war. It's tragic that the man who's supposed to be so close to God is so far away. But Elisha hears of it, and he sends for Naaman to come to see him that he might know that there's a prophet in Israel. And so we have uh, Naaman takes his entourage, the, 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 the treasures, the the talents of silver and the shekels of gold and the sets of beautiful clothing, and shows up at Elisha's doorstep. It's not, he doesn't just send a messenger, or, or he, he comes himself in all his royal array with treasure to boast. 750 pounds of silver, 150 pounds of gold, 10 sets of beautiful clothing. And Naaman must be expecting the VIP service here. He's a grand general, second in command uh, of the Arameans, uh, sent from the king of Aram and the king of Israel to see Elisha. He must be expecting red carpet. He must be expecting music, a grand welcome party. Uh, he must be expecting some flattery here, some groveling and bowing down, a grand and pompous religious display full of flair, a story worth telling back home. But Naaman shows up and gets no special, no, no special treatment, no favoritism. Instead, Elisha, he's at the doorstep, and Elisha doesn't even come out from the back room to say hi to him. Elisha sends a servant and comes out and tells him to travel 30 miles that way to the dirty little Jordan River and dip in it seven times. Now, it's quite the diss. You, this royal man, a great man with all your treasure coming to, to get healed, and the man doesn't even come out to see you. It says, Actually, keep on going, 30 miles that way, and dip in the river. Uh, after he had traveled 100 miles with all his goods, showing up at the doorstep in person, Elisha doesn't even go out to meet him. So initially, he's angry. 
He's a proud man, and he's angry, and he storms off in a rage, and he vents to his service as they're packing up to go home. Things for him didn't go as expected. He thought Elisha would come out. He thought that Elisha would call on the name of the Lord and wave his hand over the spot, and he'd be cleansed. And then he could pay the prophet for his services and be on his way, and everything would be good. And he thinks to himself, and not just that, but the Jordan River, I mean, uh, the, the rivers in Damascus are, are better, they're cleaner, they're crystal clear, they're larger, they're, they're closer to home. He could have gone down to the river in, sight, in the sight of all the people and was and dipped in them and became clean and uh, everybody could, uh, could praise, praise the gods about it. But he's got to go down to the Little Jordan River. So I got a picture of the Jordan River. It's not a grand river, it's not a great river, it's a little bit murky looking, it's small, it doesn't look like anything special. He says, really, I got to go down to the Jordan River? An inglorious act for a glorious man. But again, we see servants here looking out for their masters. Um, first, it was the slave girl looking out for, for Naaman, telling him about the Lord. And now it's his own servants, his other servants, uh, that say to him, you know, Father, if the prophet had told you to do some great things, some great thing, you would have done it, Right? How much more than when he tells you, wash and be cleansed? I mean, if the prophet Elisha came out and told you, you needed to go scale this mountain, you need to scale Mount Everest, and then the Lord will heal you, or you need to sacrifice a thousand bulls and pray a thousand prayers, or you need to conquer Egypt, and then the Lord will heal, heal you. Naaman would have been like, all right, this is, the kind of, this is the kind of thing I'm going for here, something that would, gets, to, gets to my heart and my pride and my glory. I think Naaman would have figured out a way to get it done for the sake of his healing and for the sake of his own glory. And this is how religions work. You got to make certain pilgrimages. You got to give so much money. You got to say so many prayers or certain prayers. You got to give honor to certain people. You got to follow the litany of rules. And at the end of the day, after following through with all these things, a lot of people still aren't quite sure if they've given enough to make themselves holy or clean in the sight of God. The lingering sense of unworthiness emptiness still resounds in the chambers of their heart. I think here's where the, the gospel is seen uh, so clearly, that Naaman uh, has to humble himself and go down to the Jordan River. And he doesn't bring with him a soap, uh, a bar of soap. He doesn't bring with him uh, a brush. Um, he's not mixing his own effort with the efforts of the water. Uh, he doesn't uh, choose a river of his own liking. He has to receive the one marked out by God. He has to leave his money uh, and all of his goods with the baggage, and he has to walk by himself down the valley, down, 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 to the little Jordan River, with nothing to offer, nothing glorious. All he has to offer is his own leprous body. And as an act of obedience that comes from faith, he goes down and dips in the water seven times. He washes and becomes clean. This whole scene is a picture of the cross of Christ. I mean, the cross of Christ in the eyes of the world is a small thing, a foolish thing, a dirty thing, a bloody thing, a, stum a, a foolishness to the Gentiles and a stumbling block to the Jews, a place where men have nothing to bring, nothing to offer, a place where pride is vanity, where men come on their knees to accept the gift of salvation as an unearned grace of God an exclusive place, the only place where the sacrifice for sin paid for by the blood of Jesus is able to cleanse man 
from the deepest sin of the human heart, of the human heart where we're washed and made clean on God's terms by God himself. So Naaman comes out of the water with skin like that of a young child. I think it's interesting. It says young boy. It reminds us at the beginning of the account with the little girl, the young little girl and her faith who led him to this very point. It reminds me of Jesus who said, unless you change and become like a little child, you will never enter the kingdom of God. It's a simple trust in God, a simple faith in Christ. You don't have to do something great There's nothing more we need to do before coming to God. In fact, it's not even accepted. God only requires a simple faith in him through the the one river he's chosen, the river of life, his son, Jesus Christ. And so Naaman is healed. And in response to his healing, he doesn't just go home. Uh, it's, It's a long trek home, 100 miles still. But he goes back. He goes back to Elisha takes his entire caravan, his entourage, 30 miles back to Elisha, and in a display of gratitude, he makes this wonderful confession. Now I know that there's no God in all the world except in Israel, so please accept a gift from your servant. And even though Naaman urged, Elisha would not receive the gift. And I'm like, you know, why? Why aren't you, why aren't you receiving a gift? Why aren't you receiving payment? And I, think it, I can think of at least two reasons why he didn't receive a gift. The first is because Elisha didn't do anything. It wasn't Elisha. He didn't come out and and make the grand display and wave his hand over it and say a a magic incantation and and then heal him by his own power. No, Elisha didn't do it. Elisha just sent a messenger. He merely pointed Naaman down the road to where he would receive his cleansing. And Elisha wanted to make a distinction that it was not him who healed, it was God. The second is that he wanted Naaman to know that salvation of God is a grace, meaning it's a gift. God doesn't accept payment for the gift of salvation. He freely gives it through his son Jesus. It's received by faith, not by works. Elisha would not let Naaman or any other person believe that a transaction was taking place here that he was healed for some sort of payment, lest the gift of salvation be reduced to some mere economic transaction. No. God's gift of salvation, his gift of healing, his forgiveness is grace. It's not earned, it's not bought. We see this also in the New Testament, uh, people wanting to buy the power of the Holy Spirit and uh, that being refused. So uh, instead Instead of receiving the gift or or being able to give a gift, uh, Naaman uh, has a couple other proposals for Elisha. So he has a conversation with him. His first is that, uh, let me take enough, as much dirt home as possible that two mules can carry. So he wants to take some dirt home. And I'm like, what? (laughs) Don't you have enough dirt at home? Like, do you need more dirt? Like, what is going on here? Well, in the religions of the day, it was thought that certain deities, certain gods, had jurisdiction over set, set geographies. Um, and so the god of the Arameans was only the god in Aram, and the god of the Canaanites was, was, was active in Canaan and, and reduced and, and restricted to that location. So different gods were worshipped in whatever way they prescribed on their own land. I think it's remarkable here that Naaman doesn't just acknowledge that God, uh, 
that the God of Israel is only, the only God in Israel, but that he's the only God in all the world. That was part of his, his uh, declaration. Now I know that there is no God in all the world except in Israel. Um, and as an act of faith, he's taking home the dirt of Israel, symbolizing his faith in God, which isn't going to be left behind. So he has to go back home, but he's not leaving the God of Israel back there. He's taking God with him. And this is the very promise that we have in Christ Jesus, that God does not require our worship to be confined to a certain geographical location. As Jesus had the conversation with the Samaritan woman, and she said to him, you know, you Jews say we're supposed to worship in Jerusalem, and we say we're supposed to worship here in Samaria. Jesus said to her, believe me, time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain or in Jerusalem. A time is coming and has now come when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is spirit, and his worshipers must worship in spirit and truth. So Naaman brings the dirt from Israel home with him, so God might be present in Aram. But the dirt God wishes to occupy isn't even confined to that little section or that little amount, the two mules worth of of dirt that he was bringing back to Aram. The dirt that God wishes to occupy is neither a city nor an altar. Rather, the dirt that God wishes to occupy is within the human body. It's your very heart. For from dust you came to dust you will return. So God wants to occupy dirt, but it's our heart a place that when given to Christ will never be forsaken. As Jesus tells us, never will I leave you, never will I forsake you. We take Jesus wherever we go. Wherever, wherever we are, whatever geography it is, God is God of that place because he's a God who's in us. And then Naaman says to him, uh, and then when I have to do my job, please forgive me. Because part of Naaman's responsibilities when he was to go back home was he had to take his master take him by the arm, and lead him into the temple of Ramon to worship. Now, Ramon was the Aramean version uh, of Baal. And there he had to kneel down with his king. But he wanted to ask for forgiveness because his heart wasn't in it. His heart wasn't in kneeling down. He was just doing his job. And never again will he be given over to Ramon now that the Lord of heaven and earth has taken hold of him. And I think it's profound how Elisha responds because Elisha doesn't tell him what to do when he gets home. All Elisha says is, go in peace, which is the blessing of God. And it's a blessing used even by our Lord Jesus. After he had healed people, he says, go in peace. Elisha doesn't tell him to go for it. He doesn't tell him to quit. He just blesses him and sends him on his way, trusting that the Lord will take care of him. I think sometimes as a pastor, it's tempting for me to, to try to tell people how to live their lives or what to do. But that's not my place. Uh, if, it's, if it's somebody's living in a direct and obvious sin, um, I, I can speak up and speak into that. But, but, but for the most part, as a pastor, I give testimony to God's word, how he's worked in my life, and I encourage others to, to follow the Lord and run the race that he's marked out for them. I mean, no man is, is my God except Jesus Christ. And so it's up to you to read his word, to pray, to hear from him, and follow him. So in this way, Elisha says to him, go in peace. God's going to be with Naaman where he goes, when he goes back home. So Naaman leaves, and 
then something else takes place, something that you wouldn't expect either. Uh, there's a deception that happens. Naaman has a newfound faith and trust in God, and he's excited to serve his Lord, and he's taking his God back home. And as he's on his way out, we have an internal dialogue with this man, Gehazi. And he says to himself, Gehazi is a servant of Elisha. He says to himself, my master was too easy on Naaman, this Aramean, by not accepting from him what he brought. Surely as the Lord lives, I'll run after him and get something from him. Gehazi plotted in, in his heart to exact some of the money out of Naaman. So he creates a lie and goes to him and says, hey, some people have come from out of town and we don't have anything to give them. Can you give us some silver and clothes uh, to take to him? And Naaman, Naaman, Naaman is eager and willing to serve the Lord. So he jumps off of the chariot himself personally and says, yeah, whatever you need. You know, is there a problem? Is there an issue? Yeah, actually, I won't just give you one. I'll give you two talents. So Naaman here has, has become a generous man and has, is wanting to give of himself to the Lord. But Gehazi, uh, for him, this is a deception. For him, it is a lie crafted to get money. And so Gehazi takes the money uh, with a couple servants and goes. And before going back to work, he takes the money and hides it in his house and then shows up back at work and, and stands in front of Elisha like nothing happened. Notice also here that Gehazi says in his heart, this Aramean. Um, it's subtle, right? This Aramean. It, there's, uh, there's racism here. A proud and racist heart. He's got a prejudice against these people from the north. I mean, there's tension between them, right? A prejudice which even carried on into the New Testament, the same sorts of prejudice in the New Testament, when the early church had to be convinced through visions from Jesus that all people who received the gospel of Christ were considered clean. That Peter had that, that vision that said, don't consider unclean the things that I have made clean, right? Whether you're Jew or you're Gentile, those of us who belong to, to Christ in faith are considered clean in the eyes of God. But Gehazi didn't have this heart. He just saw this Aramean and thought, my master was too easy on him. So Gehazi wanted to get something from him. I mean, Gehazi here uh, was part of the school of the prophets. Uh, uh, Samuel uh, opened up a school for prophets, and Elisha had different schools for prophets, training men in the word of God, in the things of God, and Gehazi was his personal servant. And, and ministry is supposed to be about giving. I mean, the word minister means servant. So, uh, I mean, even our Lord Jesus says it's more blessed to give than to receive. So, so ministry is about a minister, a servant, who's supposed to serve the people on behalf of God. And Gehazi, on the other hand, felt that ministry for him was about getting. He wanted to, it even says, to get something from him. And in the end, Gehazi did get something, but it was something he didn't expect. Some people eager for money have wandered from the faith and pierced themselves with many griefs. I mean, Gehazi was in it for the money, and in the end it showed. The Lord revealed his judgment upon Gehazi by giving him the very leprosy that was cured from Naaman. That leprosy that was, that was in his heart revealed and exposed uh, in a tangible way for all people to see. Note that Naaman was willing and eager to give up all of his treasure, and he was blessed by God 
spiritually, physically, socially. And another blessing or kindness from God was that he allowed him to keep all the treasure that he was so eager to give up. Gehazi, on the other hand, was willing to cheat, to lie, to manipulate, to steal in ministry, to get ahead. Perhaps he thought, I've been in ministry a long time. I'm not making ends meet. I'm not making the money that I thought I would. It's not the right career choice, so I'm going to try to get a little extra money on the side. And because of this, he was cursed. He's cursed spiritually, physically, socially. Now he would be a quarantined, isolated leper, separated from his people. And it was something that he passed down, a disease. It says he passed down from generation to generation. So herein lies a warning to all people who would seek to use religion as a cover-up for greed. You can do it, you can do it, but only for so long. Eventually, your heart will reveal itself. Eventually, you get found out. So, this account, it begins with the faith of a little slave girl. It's a little, little faith in God, and her little faith still speaks to us today. And we have a great man, a proud man, but he has an incurable disease, and he, he, he goes to Israel seeking healing. But when he's not, not flattered, he's forced to humble himself before God and accept the path of healing prescribed by God. And his faith, which leads to obedience, leads to his washing and his cleansing. And in gratitude, he tries to pay something back, but instead he's given a blessing to take his newfound God back to his home country and worship him there. And the, the account began with the faith of a little slave girl, but it ends with the faithlessness of a different servant of God, Gehazi, who's discontent in the service of God, in the end strikes him with the very disease he witnessed being healed. So if you don't know Jesus this morning, I hope, like, like Naaman here, if you realize you've got some sort of condition, some longing in your heart that, that is un, unfulfilled, a condition that's not taken care of, I hope that you would receive God's free gift, the cleansing of sin washed clean by the blood of Christ shed on the cross. And for all the rest of us, may we be blessed with the ever-present dwelling of the Spirit of God, whom we take with us throughout this world in sincere and genuine love and faith, seeking the well-being of the people of God, the people that God has surrounded us with, and resting contently in the pure and lasting fulfillment of Christ in us, the hope of glory, the God through whom our deepest dreams for lasting love and longings for life without end come true. So I'm going to uh, pray, and we've got, uh, and invite the band out. We've got the elements of communion out here. If you are not a believer, uh, communion is not for you because it's a declaration that you've received uh, the body of Christ that was broken for you and the blood of Christ that was for your cleansing and your forgiveness of sins. So we have these down available for you at the front. Uh, we'll also have people available to pray on the sides. I'll be available to pray at the front as well. But let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you, God, so much for your kindness towards us, Lord. We thank you for your love for us, God. We thank you, God, uh, that it's in you that we have our faith, Lord, and that we can take you wherever we go. We thank you, Lord, that when we humble ourselves before you, uh, you don't despise us, Lord, but you wash us and you cleanse us, God. I thank you, Lord, that you are with us always, Lord. And I pray that today, God, if there's anybody who needs your cleansing, Lord, if there's anybody who needs your forgiveness, God, that they would receive it, Lord, as an act of faith, an act of trust in you, Lord, and that you would go with us, Lord, by your Spirit, God, to the, the very end of the age. We pray in the name of Jesus. Amen.